welcome to Media Democracy. It's a very occasional podcast about media, politics and the politics of the media. I'm still Tom Mills and I'm joined as ever by my friend and co-host Dan Hind. How are you doing, Dan? Very well, Tom. Very well. Welcome uh, back, everybody. We normally, we normally begin with a, a, an apology for the long delay, but I think we should just skip that because... Uh, We're not apologising anymore. We don't know you people anything. We're not. <laughs> this, is a this is a special Christmas tree. We exactly. This is a bit of a one-off, and it's been brought. You know, we it's we were persuaded to do it. Or we were we were uh, motivated to do it by recent events in uh, UK politics, uh, where we've seen a, a rather sort of sudden uh, decline in the fortunes of the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and that's a I think it's a really interesting insight into exactly this relationship between the media and, and politics that that uh, was the. Uh, the impetus for the podcast in the first place um and it's really worth sort of nailing this down as a moment i think tom because um it does sort of uh, bring out into stark relief a number of the issues that we've been talking about over the years and even though these issues are as it were in stark relief they still remain largely absent from mainstream media coverage so yeah um what i thought we would do is just kind of kick off with a quick kind of very brief chronology in the last few months, partly for my own edification, because I don't know about you, but this year has been a bit of a, a blur of, of events um, that, that arrive and are forgotten. But basically going back to um, early September of this year, um, Johnson and Sunak introduced some increases in, uh, in the tax burden and national insurance in particular to pay for uh, uh, provision of social care. Um, that doesn't actually seem to become a major problem for Johnson as he goes into the um, Conservative conference in early October, where he delivers a speech that's wi widely praised. Um, Politico, for example, describe it. Uh, they, said, they said there were no contrived moments of applause during a gag-packed policy-light speech. The faithful in the hall were, were clapping, laughing and listening, not only out of duty, but because they wanted to. Um, and then uh, in mid-November, mid uh, HS2 is scaled back. The northern extension of HS2 is, is reduced in ambition. And there's a sense that this, uh, this strategy to win over traditional uh, Labour voters in the north is starting to lose its momentum. Uh, at the end of that, at the end, sorry, at the beginning of that month, I should have said, um, uh, the first real major misstep by Johnson in the most in, in the sort of recent uh, period is that he they try and protect Owen Paterson uh, from a, uh, a suspension as an MP, which leads them into a sort of catastrophic climb down. Um, and that speaks to, I think, a, a, a background culture of impunity in the Johnson regime, a sense that they can pretty much do what they like um, without being caught out. And if you go back to uh, Barnard Castle, um, contracts to um, contacts and um, associates of, of the Conservative Party, test and trace, uh, huge numbers of people dying of COVID above all. Um, there's a sense that Johnson can really do as he pleases. Um, but then at the end of November, uh, there's this moment at the CBI in the, in the Northeast where he delivers a, a typically shambolic speech where he goes on about Peppa Pig World and stuff. Um, and suddenly the coverage changes and it's like, how dare he be, be such a shambolic mess, as though he hasn't been a shambolic mess 
uh, throughout his premiership and and before then going back to uh, his days as foreign secretary. The very end of that month on the 30th is the first mirror scoop by Pippa Krarar. I'm going to pronounce it like that. Um, I don't know how to pronounce otherwise, um, which really sort of starts the uh, kicks off uh, sort of Boris Johnson's season. Um, and we're really now at a point where these, the stories about um, party going and the breach of COVID regulations uh, in Downing Street and in, and in Conservative Central Office have been sort of bubbling along now for, for the best part of three weeks. Um, and in that time, we've seen a real, uh, a real collapse of uh, the Conservative Party in the polls. They've gone from being rock solid at around 40 uh, down to sort of nudging 30 quite consistently. Um, and in, during that time, obviously, we've had a by-election in North Shropshire, which the Liberal Democrats won, um, ending a long period of, of conservative uh, rule in that, in that constituency. So that's the background. Um, and what it speaks to, to me, is uh, an, ab you know, an object lesson in the power of the media to shift the... Um, the political climate, um, but Tom, I mean, what you know, what what are, you, what what are your feelings about what's been going on these last few weeks in particular? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I, I I think the main the main thing we're seeing here is something which doesn't tend to get discussed that much in political commentary in the media for obvious reasons, which is I think the the, the role that the media plays in creating um, or buttressing political support, but also being able to essentially pull the plug on that quite quickly, which I think is, it's been quite striking, actually, the relationship between the media reporting and then the, the collapse in polling that you describe. And some of the commentary has, has rightly focused on different aspects of Johnson and Johnson's government's behaviour, which have, would, you know, in, in inflame public opinion. But I think the thing that's been missed out really is that essentially what it looks like is the media um, in coalition with sections of the political elite have, have turned on Johnson. So we're going to talk a bit about why that is. I think it's worth saying before we get into that, that there have been, you know, key things which the the government's done, which seem to me to be like huge missteps. I mean, I think going back to Dominic Cummings, the the insight I think that he had that a lot of the mainstream political and political commentators didn't have was the general sort of contempt with which the public tend to view politicians, right? And he was able to through the the, the Brexit campaigns so of harness some of that political energy. And that was part of how they got out of that political crisis around Brexit, you know. So if you think of the sort of authoritarian, unconstitutional moves that the Johnson government made, a lot of it was rooted in that, that, that sort of, um, I suppose, anti-political sort of sentiment that really cuts across, you know, left and right in public opinion. I think they, they that Johnson has, I mean, before we get on to the, like, the media element of it, I think the way that they behave, they have sort of misinterpreted the lesson, which was like, you know, the lesson of how they achieve Brexit should be that people don't have much respect for, like, the political niceties, the rules of Westminster and all of the rest of it. 
but they seem to have interpreted that as being we in Westminster can do whatever we want, which I think is 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 definitely the wrong interpretation. I think what it also shows, though, and we can come on to talk about this in a little bit more detail, is that they kind of can do whatever they want, provided they have a united front and they have media support. I mean, for me, that's been the lesson of the last two years or so. And that's the lesson of I think we should take when we're looking at the decline in support. There's been a lot of people on the left and the centre left sort of look in complete, you know, exasperation at how can the Tories do this and, and get away with it. And I think there's a kind of general resistance towards saying, look, the, the, the way that the media reports on what goes on in Westminster, how and, and the personalities and the policies will have an impact on how people perceive political culpability. Um, and that seems like such an obvious thing to say, but I think that there's a sort of, number one, you don't tend to talk about the power of the media in the media. And number two, I think even people who aren't really bound up with that kind of game, if you like, being a media commentator, there's always been this sort of sense that talking about media power um, is kind of unsophisticated. And I think some of that, you know, comes that's quite common I think on like but for like left intellectuals to kind of resist talking about the role that the media has in forming political opinion um I guess we don't have time but you know we could have a whole different conversation about that kind of political and intellectual history but I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there's there's two elements of this like number one the fact that in the media the power of the media is not discussed and number two I think there's also genuinely a strain of um, left political commentary that doesn't quite know what to do about media power and, and, and where to place it. And I think you've seen over the last two years that kind of shock in, in how you know, conservative support could be maintained. Um, of course, a lot of it has to do with the political economy of the housing market as well. Um, but I think if you combine together the political economy of the housing market with the political economy of the media, that really does um, explain a very large proportion of what's going on in British politics. I mean, I guess one thing that we need to we need to talk about as well, though, once we get into like the you know what what do we mean when we talk about media power, is that we're not simply talking about the media as a completely independent power structure. So I think I mean maybe we want to talk about this a little bit more, but like the Clearly, partly what's going on here is insiders um, providing information to journalists and the media being the forum through which those sort of intra-elite kind of, uh, conflicts are playing out. I mean, this is something that like Erin Davis has written about a lot in trying to think about the media as the sort of sphere within which um, elite, you know, competitive elites will, will, will sort of um, pursue uh, different different kinds of and that, that we can see that, I think. I mean, we obviously don't know a huge amount about the um, about the sources of the different stories and who's leaking it. But overall pictures, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 very clear, isn't it, that that the um, the the starting gun on these stories is fired by insiders leaking documentary evidence to um, to journalists. Um, in you know, she says she says in an interview that she gave um, for the media show, I think on Radio Four. She said she was handed a dossier um, that enabled her to stand up 
rumours about there having been these parties in Downing Street in December. Now, I don't know how secret those parties could have been in December of last year, um, given how many people were going there, and given how tight these relationships are between um, the media and the political directorate that we that we're talking about. It's also very worth it's worth noting that but Private Eye have reported on a particularly uh, bacchanalian party at the Sun last December as well, mm. um, which was, you know, which by all accounts was completely off the chain um, behaviour by, by the Sun. So there's a sense, I think, of these zones of impunity that are shared by the media and by the political directorate that remain pretty much lock solid until, rock solid rather, until they suddenly aren't. Um, it's much rarer for the light to shine on the inner workings of the media than it is on the inner workings of, of government, as you say, because there are plenty of political players who are looking to secure advantage in the political domain who are, who are using the media as their zone of contention. Um, the, the, the dynamics of intra-elite competition within the media class itself are very different. Um, and they are, you know, frankly, you know, media regime, media institutions are, they tend to be much more despotic um, in the case of, uh, you know, the, the News International operation and so on. So um, they, they, ha they have different internal dynamics, but they, but they are obviously kind of closely related to one another. I mean, your point earlier about um, Johnson as well, like his, his emergence, I think, in 2019 as, a, as an important factor, um, in in the politics of the country and the way in which he stages himself as a sort of anti-systemic politician is really important. It's an important part of his appeal in 2019. It's one of the ways in which the kind of the slogan of get Brexit done has given its kind of impetus, if you like. And it's it's clear to me that he's created as a as a as a political personality for a large number of people in the country by the tabloids. So the broadsheets have had a long had a relationship of sorts with with Johnson and talked about him, um, but the but the but the Mail and the Sun and and the rest of the right wing tabloids are able to present him as the solution to to our the national you know, um, deadlock in two thousand and nineteen, because yeah. basically people don't really know very much about him apart from that he's got floppy hair and he was on Have I Got News for You, um, yeah, and I think it was about presenting somebody who you know despite the fact he's so much one of them because of the way he sort of carries himself because of his like you know his his contempt for the rules and his and his his disinterest in um you know his, his kind of laziness and his amateurism and some of his sort of studied amateurism in terms of like you know his manner I mean there's a lot of famous that he tends to be less organized than he is but he is genuinely lazy um but the fact that he could cut across could, could have a certain amount of appeal beyond the sort of classic tour i suppose like the, the sort of four tory base as well as maintaining support amongst those like home counties voters for example was was really key i mean i think and sometimes with this debate these debates over johnson and how we got johnson and whether we're going to lose johnson sometimes they're losing sight of why we had Johnson in the first place. Like, why was he, I mean, we've talked about this off air already, but like, why, why was Johnson useful? 
why was he being positioned in the way that he was? You know, in other words, how did we get up, get end up with Johnson? Is an is an important question. Then it also leads on to the question: Well, why do they feel like they don't need him anymore? Which I think probably what we should cover next. But as you said, like Johnson presented a sort of opportunity to break the Brexit deadlock in a way that Theresa May just didn't seem like to be able to politically achieve. There was a sort of exhaustion in like the sort of parliament, parliament and constitutional system, but there was also the fact that, you know, he was he was their best candidate to be able to see off um, the Labour left. I mean, that was, you know, there, there were two big priorities for, um, or two big crises, I think, which were resolved by 2019. One was the possibility of a social democratic government, and the other one was this deadlock over Brexit. And Johnson presented a solution to both. Not a solution, I think, that it should, we should say that everybody within the Conservative Party or within the sort of ruling class, if you like, necessarily liked. But it was it was the it was the the opening, and I think ultimately in terms of Brexit, which I mean for me. A risk of getting a little bit off topic like an interesting question for me in the last my mind in the last couple of years is like you know why was a hard brexit able to happen and i think a big part of it actually was that there was this threat of the of a sort of social democratic government that, that these people basically didn't want and they would much prefer go with johnson i mean they did double down on him and that, that's the reality of what happened in 2018 um i don't like to talk about very much so johnson i think was politically very useful in that context he there's there's a question which i don't know the answer to and i I don't think any of us do quite yet which is why exactly they've turned on johnson but i think we can talk about why they feel more comfortable turning on johnson now which a risk of you know um breaking over the coals i think is basically to do with what's happened in the labor party but they're, they're they're comfortable now that you know, things are basically safe in terms of like mainstream parliamentary politics. They don't need to be backing somebody like Johnson. They don't see Kistama or the left um, of the Labour Party as being a threat. I mean, I think that, again, that's another context which doesn't seem to be discussed very much, but they backed Johnson because they wanted to crush, crush Corbyn and break out of a constitutional deadlock. And they feel comfortable not backing Johnson now because they don't see any threat from an alternative. In other words, he's probably overcome his usefulness. I mean, I, I do wonder whether, from a political perspective, whether it's a bit naive of the Tories, because in a way, whilst there's no threat from the opposition in any sort of fundamental sense, it's hard to see that they would be able to have a successful, to my mind anyway, I, I could be proved wrong, but like, it's hard to see that he would be able to be as politically successful as Johnson. But then I suppose there's a question as to whether Johnson could again be political. I suppose I have to see. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to see it's hard to see this uh, this sort of um attack on on Johnson kicking off, as you say, if the the opposition was um uh, was of a different complexion, if you like. Um the um the, the labor response has been slightly more toothy it's so they've been slightly more in a way of oppositional rhetoric uh, in the last few weeks um but it's very much been tied to um the idea of a, a kind of moralizing account of how the the um conservatives aren't managing effectively 
Um, and, the, and the Labour Party are positioning itself again as the natural party of government um, that, yeah. will manage, that will manage effectively. They're better at doing this. And remember, you know, we're now 11 years into um, either Conservative or Conservative-led coalition government. Uh, the next election, it will probably be 12 or 13 years or, you know, something of that order. So they've, they've had a long lick of the lollipop. And, you know, now that now that they've got a B team that looks like it will come in for five years and softly, softly carry on with things like NHS fragmentation, privatisation and so on. Um, like the stakes di are definitely different. Um, but I think at the same time, th they've got to be looking at Johnson and thinking this is a, a very tarnished brand. Um, we got him in uh, in 2019 to stop Corbyn and to get Brexit done. Uh, he was propaganda in flesh, right? He was a media confection. He was created by the Conservative Party in, co in, a, in kind of partnership with their media allies and their, and their various sort of public relations operations. I mean, as a sidebar, you know, there, were, there was a huge amount of, of uh, sub, sub, subterranean online activity comparing Corbyn and Johnson, where Corbyn is this absurd vegetarian and allotment haunter, whereas Johnson's this absolute lad who uh, everyone would want to be mates with and have a pint with. And that kind of that libidinal politics that was built up around Johnson, I think, is part of how that coalition was kept together, as you say. Yeah. With a, you know, broadly, there was a there was a broadsheet, um, broadsheet sort of conservative vote that just didn't want to see their taxes go up and understood that the Conservatives weren't going to do that. And then there was a much broader, much more diffuse sort of nationalist vote um, that was, you know, again, to use a sort of shorthand, was sort of more, more available to the tabloids, um, who wanted things to change in a very sort of diffuse way. They were fed up with the Conservatives and they thought Johnson was like a breath of fresh air. And, and that, that idea of him as a, an agent of change after 10 years of Conservative rule was, was a potent part of his Oh yeah, I mean, you remember back to like what the kind of lines were then. There was all this reference to we are going to be a sort of a government that's going to get things done, right? Which was kind of crazy because they had been in government for such a long time. But like, obviously, what they've done is they've just done loads of focus groups and they realised that there was an opening there for them to just completely rebrand themselves as having not been in government. Yeah. and that you know that that work very effectively for them. Again, it's like a level of political disengagement as to, you know, these people are all the same kind of thing. That that same sort of anti-political sort of energy they did, that they were clearly trying to riff off and did effectively for a little while to the point where, you know, like Johnson could like talk about the record of the government of which he was part as if it was a completely yeah. different government. And they did have that have that sort of extraordinary opening i mean i think it's funny that they haven't i mean you know in terms of like doubling down on the new support that they have potentially had up in the north you know all that tedious talk of the red war and everything i mean it does seem extraordinary that they would seem to throw it away in the way that they have but i suppose <clears throat> it has to be explained by a degree as well of genuine incompetence around and like um you know uh division around johnson i mean it's hard to sort of make sense of it 
Well, there is, you know, there is this broader question, which again, I think is, is just not talked about really, or very rarely talked about in, in sort of media coverage, certainly doesn't feature in the very, very broad coverage provided by the BBC, which is just the hollowing out of state capacity. Like, mm. we, we just, we seem increasingly unable to do basic things uh, via the state, because the people aren't there. Um, the the, uh, the apparatus is infested by people who are constantly looking for you know validation from management consultants and so on right there's a real sense of intellectual paralysis in the british state where if you said to them well you're now going to do an industrial policy they'd kind of they would just get on the phone to mckinsey straight away right yeah. and and it, and, it, and it's really i think it's really interesting um, to compare you know, everyone talks about you know, the New Deal moment in the US is a sort of, you know, a moment of, of kind of regeneration in government by, by a ruling elite that's really on the ropes. And just how many outsiders go into Roosevelt's administration, right? They're just not from the, the Ivy Leagues. They're not from the political aristocracy in the, in, the, in the way that you might imagine. They're all kind of weirdos and professional gamblers and people who rode the railways for years and stuff, right? And, and in the UK and in the contemporary United States, everyone's just kind of looking at everyone else's like advanced degrees or MBAs or you know like their credentials, and and being um, being kind of overwhelmed by the, the 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 sort of terror of actually making a decision. Um, they, um, it's funny because you know I mean as you were talking, I was thinking Dominic Cummings and the role that he played in you know John Johnson's rise and the you know, his, his earlier period in, in government. And he kind of had his mad solution to that, which, you know, his sort of right libertarian solution was that like, well, actually it's a good thing that we don't have public sector, we don't have state capacity because we don't need that sort of state capacity. What we need is a different version of McKinsey, which is like, you know, tech disruptors and again, outsiders. But he seemed to have a sort of an ideological vision for dealing with that collapse in state capacity which obviously been pretty disastrous and and was pretty disastrous but he he had that sort of acknowledgement of the you know the lack of capacity of the British state and a kind of idea no matter how like sort of crackpot about what you do about that yeah but with him gone you're sort of left with like a combination of like you said like the these these sort of corporate um cowboys and friends of who <laughs> often friends of politicians lining their own pockets and not really knowing what to do apart from that and it's very striking I mean I think it's, it's hard to know like it's hard to know really whether you know what what Johnson himself wants if anything but I think with the presence of Cummings there um there was at least a sort of you know, people say like Johnson doesn't have any ideology. I mean, I don't think that's true, but like there's a strategic sort of side, you know, Cummings is a very strategic thinker. I mean, like Johnson just clearly isn't, is he? And it's hard to know, you know, what what program do they do they really have? I mean, the obvious thing to them to do, I mean, I'm repeating myself here, really, was that, but would, would have been at least to sort of double down on that electoral coalition that they managed to form for themselves in 2019. And it looked like they were going to quite effectively do that um yeah i mean that's the thing i mean the to do that you would have had to have had um 
planning capacity in the state. You'd have had to have had the ability yeah. to redesign places, reinvest, reflate local economies, place by place. Um, yeah. It's not, you know, it's not it's not impossible to do. It's just that 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 is not part of the, the sort of repertoire now of the British state. And there's no one there, it seems, um, who who has a plan, like a coherent plan of as how you might reintroduce it. I mean, there's a very interesting conversation Matt Stoller had uh, on a podcast called The West Wing Thing recently, which is which is preoccupying me a bit because he talks there about the intellectual paralysis in America's ruling class at the moment and how how credentialized it's become and how people in in Congress in particular don't think it's their job to rule. And I think we've got mm. a very very extensive problem in the British state is that most people in Parliament don't think it's their job to rule. Um, yeah. Most people on the left and centre left think it's their job to emote on behalf of inverted commas, vulnerable groups. Uh, they, they don't really want to rule. The only people in Parliament, as far as I can see, who want to rule are exactly these, these sort of headbanging right-wing libertarians, whose mm -hmm. ideas are terrible um, and childish, but they nevertheless do, as it were, have a will to power of some sort. They, they want to do things with, with, um, with, with state power. Um, the frightening thing, I think, about Corbyn and McDonald for the for the ruling class is that there were glimmerings there of a will to rule, like yeah. that maybe we maybe we should build new institutions that can do new things that have new capacities yeah. that aren't constantly just shoveling money out of the door to private contractors. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think you know if you look at this kind of skill set, insofar as there's a skill set at the heart of um the british government i.e like downing street and people around it you know these are the, their comms people really i mean the, their main their main set of skills are to do with messaging and exactly the sort of nexus that we've been talking about between media and and, and politics and so what they did that you know, like you say they're not they're not trying to rule exactly but they are trying to maintain a certain perception of their leadership and their their command and their formal position as people in charge of the society and all of that you know but that's what all their energy goes into it's a sort of you know it's a public relations state really like a common state and that's and i think like the role that's why as again like the, the media and people in and around and in between the media and politics become so important to understanding what's going on you know and you see it with these sort of um you know with these people circulating between downing street and the bbc and the press i mean that's why those guys are important because basically you know the 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 key skills in in governing a neoliberal post neoliberal whatever you want to call it state are just based on on the on the perception management now that being the case um this brings us to this question of yeah the, the power of the media in being able to maintain that you know and the and being able to you know the role that the media play in ensuring that this sort of non-political project sort of stays on the rose or sustainable and perhaps more disturbingly i think their ability to be able to plug on it when they want i mean you know we we all saw them crush Corbyn but I think in the context of like post Leveson see you know that that basically the media or and in, in 
lockstep with step other you know rival sections of the political elite and just pull the plug on someone who seemed invincible in the space of a few weeks. I mean, I think it really was. I mean, I know you mentioned a few things, but like I guess the main ones are the the Paston scandal, aren't they? And then going into the party scandal, both of which had touching on that key public like um anger over you know one rule for them and one rule for us but this is like you know classic um tab right-wing press kind of territory as well even though it's been directed towards like um a right-wing government the idea that oh you know that, that sort of anti-politics sentiment has also been fostered by these interests precisely to create the kind of state that you're describing the kind of state that doesn't want to rule because people have to believe that politicians are not, you know, if, if they did rule, everything would be worse, right? And that's basically the thrust of like, um, you know, conservative arguments, really. And yeah, that's, that's actually right, isn't it? That the, the on, you know, on the right, the idea is that the less state, the better, um, is the kind of like that's default because that that protects private power. Um, mm -hmm. So anything, I mean, you're right. The original. Daily Mail response to the Owen Passing Affair was to talk about um, the behaviour of MPs rather than of the Conservative Party. Um, yeah. And they were able, yeah, you, they were initially, they were steering it in that direction. And we saw something similar with the expenses scandal, where yeah. the thing that everyone was doing at the time, um, and probably more egregiously being done by right-wing politicians, um, became grist to the mill um, that led eventually to uh, the defeat of the Labour government, um, because people just wanted a change um, and were able to be corralled into um, supporting um, Cameron's Conservatives. Um, so, you know, anti-systemic sort of feeling often has a right-wing valence, as you say, for the the reasons you describe again this is something that was um deeply problematic about corbyn's project and that he was again falteringly and partially articulating an anti-systemic project that was actually in favor of, of active government the problem is we're not governing enough right we're not taking responsibility enough uh and therefore we're going to nationalize the railways for example Right. This is a this is deeply problematic. If your if your if your kind of project is to say, no, no, get government out of the way, get government out of the way. The government is the problem. Um, so, um, I guess one thing I'd add to that, Dan, is that a problem that Corbyn faced, and I, I know you've made this point in the past, actually, that was that it was difficult for Corbyn to be anti-systemic in that sense as well, because like. Just in the same way, like you want to argue that, look, that with politics comes, you know, politics can deliver something for you. You know, it can improve your life. Lies was like one of the key messages of, of Corbynism, precisely in that sort of mood in which people lost any faith in politicians. But equally, his appeal was precisely to make that appeal as somebody who's different to all of the politicians and then get sucked into you know, I, I mean, there's obviously all the parliamentary Brexit stuff, but particularly what I was going to say, the point that you've made in the past, which is that he would never mention, like, or critique the Labour right, like, publicly. Um, I mean, it's, that sort of made sense, because for a lot of people, they don't know the difference between the Labour right and the Labour left. And But it was also the fact that he was just completely captive to these people, whilst they were actively 
sabotaging exactly that project and that really i think that that we could corbin and I, I think that you know that dynamic you're saying about how having to like ask people to have some hope in politics yes but also to recognize that politics hasn't delivered for people like that's the sort of challenge of I guess like left populism, isn't it? Like as, as opposed to right populism. With right populism, you don't really have to ever, seems like you don't really have to deliver very much. You don't have to make um, promises. You don't have to restore any faith in anything as such. Like it seems like less of a challenge in some ways. Is that yeah, again, again, maybe because they've got, you know, this massive communicative apparatus behind them that will say, no, 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 we've got a new leader now. It's all going to change, for example. Yeah. You know, or that was that was the old that was the old lot. This is the new lot, and they can they can rely on that degree of of kind of corroboration from the media that the um, they probably tend usually can't hope for. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the interesting thing about Corbyn was the way that he was presented in the uh, in the media in the media as this sort of intense threat to our way of life. Uh, when in reality, you know, he was leading a profoundly divided party and was very weak within the PLP, as, as we're now seeing. I mean, you know, it was an incredibly um, unpromising position from which to try and do anything at all. So it's easy to 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 get to, you know, get het up or, you know, uh, you know, caught up in, in what was done wrong or whatever. But but frankly, the fact he got as far as he did is a miracle. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And we've got Keir Starmer now, so everything's everything's fine. Well, again, in, and, you know, to some extent, you can see the operation of the media in making Keir Starmer a thing. I mean, you know, at the moment, the media are um, attacking Johnson on deeply personalised grounds as, as somebody who, who doesn't obey the rules. Now, you can make a series of highly personalised cr critiques of... Um, of Starmer, sorry about that. Um, you can make very similar critiques of Starmer on the same grounds, right? Mm. Um, he he came up with all these pledges last year to get elected as a Labour Party, which he's now broken, and the media are just like, well, that's cool, nothing wrong with that. Um, if anything, it's good. It shows right. maturity. <laughs> I mean, when they talk, when they talk, kind of, you know, um, after hours. Um, they'll say, yeah, well, you know, he was only lying to the membership of the Labour Party, and of course, those swine deserve everything they get, kind of thing. I mean, that's sort of that's sort of their their position. Um, you know, like when I have seen him confronted that in the media, in the media, which is extremely rare. I, I, I can't remember if it was one clip. It might have been just one clip. I don't even remember where it was. It was probably the BBC. But they were actually coming at Star, uh, Starmer from like the opposite direction, and been like, you know, you do you promise these things. Yeah, how can we trust you not to? Not, not to do the thing that you oh, said. Not you're right. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, how can we trust that you're definitely not a socialist? Um, I've never seen. I mean, I'm sure there have been clips. But I've never seen him confronted. Like, you know, because you would think if a politician made literally a series of pledges and then like just flagrantly broke them, that like some journalists might bring it up. Just you know, maybe a junior junior journalist just just to show that they're brave. But it doesn't seem to happen. And in a recent interview, I think he said, you know, he said that uh someone asked him if he was a socialist or something and he's i can't remember exactly he had a sort of abusive answer but then he literally written an article about socialism or the guardian like you know like a year and a half before yeah. it's kind of extraordinary really. 
Uh, but no, you're you're right. It, it shows basically like how. I mean, I mean, quite... again, I suppose the point as well is that having having for you know forsworn the the, the obvious attack line on Starmer, which is he's just got he got elected under false pretenses, basically, they can revive that at any moment, right? Yeah. Between now and the next election, pretty much, they've always got that in their back pocket. Um, Why and... they've had them in their back pocket? These. You know these pictures. I mean, it's all—it's always a question. Sometimes this does get mentioned in the media, actually, which is when these scandals happen. Usually, people have documents or photos, which, like, either they weren't in their possession and they've been leaked to them, which doesn't become part of public knowledge because of the way that, like, the lobby, the lobby work. You know, there's the, that that insider um, mechanism, or they've just had them um, and they're just waiting to use them, like a blackmail box, basically. Yeah, and you know. Uh, again, I am repeating myself, but like I think in the Coast Leveson, where like basically to crudely summarise, you know, uh, you have essentially a, a, some companies with a, a blackmail-like relationship to politicians, criminal syndicates, as we've described them before on the show. I think in that context, watching what's unfolding at the moment with with Johnson is very disturbing um, about the, the power of the media um in in combination with politics because i think it's important it is important to emphasize this that we're not talking about distinct independent power structure we are talking about networks which operate across politics and the media but the the fact is that there is an ability to influence perception very strong capacity to influence perception of um of characters of possibilities and to really manage what becomes discussed and what doesn't and what has legs as the cliche has it and what doesn't which is like so obvious like anyone anybody can see that right yeah but it, it, it takes a certain sort of disciplined mind to just ignore that that's going on I mean you can hear you know journalists sort of having these discussions as to why did this story cut through you know innocently with each other you know yeah. as if as if they as if they're not participants in it and as if it isn't the obvious thing which is like they've decided to report this and make it a story because their colleagues are doing it and there's been deliberate decisions by people you know that's what makes it a story um you know i'm not saying anything profound here i'm just pointing out the obvious that something that's completely obvious to most people but is never is never discussed by these people and i think that tells you something about the way that they conduct themselves and the way that they conduct and the, the way that they see or at least portray their role in the power structure that they just simply will not be honest about the role that they play you know i mean sometimes you see it obviously in un unguarded moments but they don't do it and polite political commentators don't mention it so it's basically left to podcasters more or less it is and it you know it's left to um stray voices on on twitter which we'll come back to quickly i mean two two points occurred to me as you were talking there firstly the role of the media in the uk um one of the things it does is it it presents and it represents a highly personalized model of politics um it's constantly about the character of or the personality of of individuals rather than um the details of policy the idea that a government is a is a political project if you like uh driven by you know a set of policy priorities rarely features in political coverage um it's overwhelmingly about court 
court intrigue. Um, and as, as I say, the personal qualities of rulers. And that is a choice by the media. That's part of how the media exercise their power, it seems to me. Is, yeah. is, is Johnson prime ministerial? Is Kasama prime ministerial? Who's up and who's down? Who's, who's the coming person here and there? Um, th those are questions that the media are interested in asking and answering. Um, and the other point I would make, you know, as you say, the relationship between uh, the, the media and the political is not one of a, a kind of autonomous media sector kind of doing what it likes with the political. Um, these are intertwined um, sets of actors that are mutually dependent in lots of ways. But certainly since the 1970s, um, it seems to me that a certain kind of political actor and a certain kind of media actor um, have been working to privilege one another, and that's overwhelmingly been on the right. Um, the right have been able to neutralise and marginalise left-wing voices in the media and left-wing voices in politics. Um, and we're now at a point where the Labour Party, at its, in its elite levels, um, the, those who have survived 40 years of Murdoch coverage, 40 years of people checking their phones, 40 years of going through their bins, the ones who survived are overwhelmingly people who are basically on board with the Thatcherite project. Um, and I think it's very difficult to make sense of the current complexion of, of representative politics without understanding what 40 years of this relationship between the political directorate and the media directorate has, has brought us to. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, people who play ball get fawning coverage they get the the admiring profiles they get the photo shoots the the kind of apolitical photo shoots you know they get the soft celebrity treatment um people who don't play ball are ignored or if they start to exercise some degree of power uh it's discovered that they're in fact raving anti-semites and um like pro ira sympathizers or whatever it happens to be right they will be character assassinated um, and this is a yeah. This is this is why we are where we are, um, and and it's well worth bearing that in mind because it's not about to be discussed at any great length. Um, before we before we finish up, I mean it's been a, it's been one hell of a year as they say, but I think it's worth having a, a brief conversation about this um, relationship between as it were authorized forms of media speech, the kind of stuff that you get uh, in mainstream coverage. And then the, the kinds of discourse that are available at the moment uh, on some of the platforms. I mean, personally, it would be very difficult, I think, uh, for me to make sense of what's been going on without input from people, often anonymous accounts um, on Twitter that I follow. It's no great secret. You can find who I, you know, whose who's tweets I retweet and stuff. But there are people there who are willing to say these sorts of things and to ask these kinds of questions about the relationship between the media and the political um, that are really only available in part, I think, because they are anonymous, right? People can yeah, and, and say, say things while not being dependent on an editor keeping them you know with commissions or whatever it happens to be because they've got another job they're doing something else but if it was discovered in their job that they were doing this this stuff online they might lose their job yeah. um so you know free speech online is is very tenuous it seems to me um and it can yeah. often seem quite abstract but yeah just to just to sort of link together the two issues i suppose is that you know we, we sort of describe the way that political and media power particularly 
1970 created this kind of um you know sort of synthesis and the, and the, that that's created a certain amount of political conformity which is networked into like um media power of media institutions with a particular agenda i mean the late in the the and I mean, what, what makes it different is, is the ability for anybody to publish without an editor on platforms which these people are themselves on the journalists and the politicians they the fact is they've just never been comfortable with that and what we've seen in the last five years and actually this went you know this really did go um in parallel with a lot of the political trends which we've been sort of discussing and summarizing which in a sense come came you know Sort of coming to culmination now and, and and did a couple of years ago as well um this debate about the role of the platform in particular um the role of abuse i mean i was thinking about this yesterday actually because that news came through that laura koonsberg was leaving the bbc and i was reminded of when she was when initially she'd received a lot of pressure a lot of online criticism for her reporting. I mean, I think this is probably going on for, you know, her entire career, but I remember there was a, a big thing about left abuse, which I think died down to extent when the, the key issue became anti-Semitism. But that was basic, that idea that platform, the problems with platforms is they create an abusive culture, uh, which isn't sort of magic up out of nowhere. I mean, obviously there is a, a big problem of, of online, but you can see just how, I mean, I know we, we again we've talked about it on the show a lot in the past. How, how that became instrumentalized by these people in response to precisely that limited capacity to be able to challenge people and speak irreverently to them in a way that you simply couldn't in a in a in a media institution or a political institution. Their response to that was there is this problem of online abuse, and my God like the cynical willingness to like um channel some of that into the situation that we're at now as you mentioned which is to do with like um you know having to deal with online accounts as if this represents a threat to you know um i mean what, what actually is the argument that it's that it's a threat to i mean i suppose that it's a form of abuse but it seems like they were conflating that with like um forms of violence towards mps that's right. I mean, the most recent iteration of it came in the immediate aftermath of the murder of the Conservative MP, um, whose name I think is Mark Ames. Um, oh, is that right? Or I got that wrong? I mean, I got that. Maybe I got that wrong. Anyway, I can't remember his name um, uh, with any degree of certainty, such as the effect of lockdown brain. Um, but yeah, it seemed like a wild non sequitur um the you know very soon after this um david amos yeah you're right sorry david amos um very soon after um uh his murder they were they were denouncing uh online anonymity as though that there was in any way a connection um now you know abusive con conduct online is as you say it's a real thing um but it is in many in many respects it's it's a function of the structure of these platforms where you have um, people with a public profile who are accessible to people who are normally not able to speak back to them in any way shape or form 
And yep. it's hardly surprising that a minor, a small minority of those people speak back in ways that are intemperate or that don't sort of fit, you know, the codes of civility or, or indeed are, you know, aggressive and violent and so on. Um, but it raises the question, you know, like what would what would a, a platform be like where um, people could speak kind of um, uh, freely uh, and could protect their their online an anonymity if they wanted to, um, but they would have some degree of protection against you know um, racist abuse or, or or gendered abuse or whatever it happens to be. Because certainly this is a real is a real kind of challenge to create a public sphere where everyone um, can be effective and can see their interests and their their voice make their voice heard. Um, but the idea that you can simply insist that everyone be vulnerable to being sacked if they annoy you, which is really what the professionals of speech are demanding. Yeah. Um, that if someone makes you look like an idiot, um, then you should be able to get them fired, seems to be really what they're after. Um, and at the moment, that they haven't got their way with that, but we're, gonna he we're heading towards that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they won't yeah. rest until they get there. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's something that we want to look out for um, in the, you know, in the coming months and years. I mean, I suppose the final point to make, and we talked about this before we started recording, there's a certain sense that, that both Twitter and Facebook are becoming more fragile as, um, as the kind of key platforms. Um, I don't feel uh, compelled to be on Facebook um, very often, if at all. Um, and that's been something that's changed over the last couple of years. And Twitter itself is becoming less um, uh, less sort of significant to me, I think, as a source of information um, yeah. than it was. Yeah. Um, and it may be that uh, that we will move we will move somewhere else. And when we do, I just hope we we find a, a place that can't be um, shut down by the blue ticks. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the the question of how you deal with online abuse and how, you know, I, I don't think, to be fair, anyone's got any straightforward answers to that. But I think what we can be reasonably confident about is, and again, this is something we've talked about in, in the show a lot, is that there's always going to be a degree of negotiation between regulators and politicians people who run these platforms and the legacy institutions which have been the focus of this particular episode and I think we're seeing that playing out you know and the on the debates around online anonymity are part and parcel of that process whereby these people are coming to some sort of compromise um, obviously there's a lot going on there including the movement of advertising revenue away from the legacy institutions towards the platforms, the disruptive effect that the platforms appear to have had um, around the sort of dominance of the political centre, if you like, or at least that's the political centre kind of interpretation of things. And that reflected all of this discussion around fake news and online abuse and all of the rest of it. Well, I think what we're seeing is the slow resolution of some of that um, and the compromises that the platforms I think will be Willing to, to make in order to protect their bottom line, no matter how genuinely they may feel about my sort of libertarian principles, that's you know that's what they really care about. That's the nature of these institutions. 
And I think what we also see and are seeing, in fact, is the prioritization of um, content produced by exactly these kinds of institutions, which have been poisoning British public life and public life and politics around the world on these new platforms. Um, so the capacity for these institutions to still dominate the um, media and political environment, which we've been discussing, will be maintained at the same time as the capacity for people to challenge that and, and answer back in something like an online, I mean, we, should, we can't obviously can't romanticize Twitter, as you say, it's not, it doesn't quite, it, it doesn't operate like a public sphere, but what it does do is allow people to, to talk back. And that just seems to be unacceptable to these people. And I think we should take that seriously. Um, and I, I think one good thing is that there does seem to have been a growing awareness amongst people that these platforms, I mean, accepting your point about, like, I think the significance of individual platforms, that platforms themselves do start to form something like a, um, you know, a service or a utility, you know, and I, hopefully that is something which we can, we can um, build upon with some of the discussions that we've had, which have been a bit more descriptive, uh, which now seem a little further away, given the lack of political possibilities. But it's hard to see that anybody in another five years is going to have much faith in private platforms, I think. Yeah, that's um, really interesting. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, I mean, as you say, the the like the, the political is being leached of prescriptive content as we speak, um, quite deliberately by the centre left. They're determined to kind of um, uh, forbid the idea of political thought. Like, don't think about things. Just you know, don't think about what what you might want. <laughs> Um, just think about getting rid of the baddies and putting the goodies in is the sort of level of of messaging that we're getting. Um, but I think that the that's not going to head off this crisis of publicity that we're faced with. Um, you can't stagger on forever with a dysfunctional state and a feral media um, and expect things to just all work out. Uh, we've seen recently in Chile, the victory of uh, a left-wing presidential candidate. And he, you know, he's the representative of a social movement that went to the streets to demand a, a, a kind of reordering of the constitution, right? A rejection of politics as usual by definition, right? The idea that you alternate between center-left and center-right had governed Chile since the downfall, the end of the dictatorship, and it didn't work. It did not work for the majority of the population. And they are now refounding their constitutional order. And I think if there is hope for the UK, then it is in a moment of constitutional refoundation, right? It won't be because we simply win an election uh, on the on the center left that we'll be able to reinvigorate the British state. Because I just don't think that they're capable of doing it. I just don't think that they're like, whether they want to do it or not, they're not intellectually capable of understanding the scale of the challenge. The people yeah. who- I think, you know, Sorry, go on. Just to finish, the people who will get in under Starmer are the people who think that people from McKinsey's and Goldman Sachs are the smartest people in the room, right? Yeah. They're the ones, they, they, they are, as was famously said of um, New Labour, they're a bunch of star fuckers, right? They just want to be with the important people who are like 
who have a reputation for being the special ones. That's what they want, right? And um, if change is going to come, it's going to come from way outside that mindset. It's going to come from people who are willing to sort of entertain original thought, um, which is like not unusual in the general population, right? People are capable of being really quite creative and really quite thoughtful. Um, but it seems that our parliamentary system uh, is very effective at uh, refining those people out and getting rid of them. Um, so yeah, exactly that sense that we need to find um, ways of communicating uh, that function as a utility, that function as a genuinely public space. Uh, it's just gonna grow in, in, in intensity and urgency over the next few years, regardless of what people in the main parties are doing. Um, yeah. I think just to, just to add a small point, Dan, I mean, in terms of like the, the need for it and in terms of like the reality of the political situation that we're in, you know, we've not even, we've not even mentioned climate change in the context of everything that's been happening. And it's just like, the, the, that business as usual just isn't an option. It's not a political option. It hasn't been a political option for a long, a long time. And I think if this year, has so has underscored that just to an extraordinary degree. I mean, before we even get into all the, the political crisis that we're discussing, if it could be called a crisis, um, around Johnson, um, you know, the the combination of the pandemic and the climate crisis has just been an extraordinary period that that we're living through, and it just does demand a different sort of response. Um, the <laughs> this is bring the tone down. Sorry, but you mentioned Chile. Did you see that the BBC um, managed to find um, some someone called Gonzalo Pinochet? To, I know. Um, what a coincidence! <laughs> what a coincidence! Such common Chile. Um, I love and indeed, he was like I think he was like a second cousin. Of, like, yeah, and then second cousins not that distant. You know, that's no. not a million miles away on the on the family tree. The BBC um, absolutely outdoing itself just before <laughs> Laura Koonsberg announced her departure. I mean, we haven't talked about the BBC, but my God, um, it's nice to not talk about it sometimes. But I think we're also seeing like really, you know, the. I mean, I remember writing something after the 2019 election, something along the lines of like the last days of the BBC, but it really does feel like that. I mean, the way that they've conducted themselves um under Johnson's leadership with you know under lots of pressure from the government as usual and, and political appointees it was actually kind of interesting because when you mentioned earlier how Labour's tone to about towards the government has changed somewhat and you can see it on the BBC as well you know suddenly they've got an opportunity to actually be mildly irreverent or critical of the government for like the first time yeah um since yeah. Johnson was elected and I think it's interesting to see that you know like um and I think actually it was the last time you've seen them behaving like this was obviously towards Corbyn, where they could just treat him with complete contempt. And in a way, it must be quite fun for them to like do a little bit of political journalism for a mm -hmm. while, you know, because they're actually able to sort of behave in the way that in their heads that they think political journalists behave all the time. But yeah, yeah. in actual fact, don't. So it is, it, I was just interesting. I mean, we talked a lot about the press and the sort of explicit political role that they play but I think it's always worth bearing in mind of course that a lot of those power structures basically reverberate through the BBC um, to a level of extraordinary um, conformity 
I saw some data on reporting of uh, political issue comparing press coverage to BBC coverage the other day. It's not not something that's been published, but we'll be doing it. And it's it's amazing. It's amazing the extent to which the BBC reflects the exactly the same agenda as the press. Um, and that, that's right. You know, and they've been given, haven't they? They've been given license to to sort of be a bit more combative with the government by the by the right wing press. Like if if they're right. being less critical than than the Daily Mail or Telegraph or whatever, then no one can accuse them of a uh, of a failure of balance or you know of not being impartial, or whatever. Um, so yeah, they they are very much hemmed in by what the particularly but what the the, the right wing press. Are willing to sort of accept as being a mainstream object of consideration or concern. Yeah, exactly. And then also they can get on like um, Tories who agree with the prime minister. Well, that's the, that's the thing, and that's the other thing about their coverage. There's a sort of sensual thrill it seems to me the BBC gets when it can have two Tory MPs from slightly different factions in the Tory Party talking about whether Johnson's a goner or not, or you know, talking about internal conservative dynamics because they know they're not going to get angry calls or if they get angry calls from Tory spin doctors they can say we were very balanced in the fact we had to right thank god they don't have to have a fucking socialist on anymore ever right they just don't have to deal with that entire that whole thing has gone away they don't have to have any of that Owen Jones nonsense right and they're just like, this palpable air of relief really that seems to to sort of um, pervade their their cover yeah Kingsburg um, was very explicit about that, wasn't she, when um, Corbyn departed um, about how it was going to be a return to normal. Well, she didn't say quite those words, obviously, but she said normal opposition. Yeah, um, exactly. We'll have an effective opposition at last. Yeah. You know, it was one of the things that uh, one of the things that they said. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, we've talked a lot about uh, about this in the past, but it is astonishing. It's always astonishing to bear in mind just how big the BBC is and how utterly bereft of editorial initiative it is. Right? The idea that the BBC would make the news in any way, shape or form seems completely alien. Right? The it's only time they ever do that, actually, is they bring in some newspaper people, literally from the Telegraph. You know, it tends to be from Telegraph, actually. So they, that's that's what well, that was what Peston did. He was seen as being breaking news in very much on the same model as now. You know, that's being on the true. WhatsApp groups of all the important people. And then before him, there was Andrew Gilligan who was brought in, um, and then broke the story that then more or less broke the BBC. So you know, they have had these moments where I think that that was actually because Greg Dyke pointed out that the BBC is breaking. Why don't we do that? You know, Greg Dyke was a little bit of a rogue character, you know, so they were like, okay, well, yeah, we'll, we'll appoint uh, Andrew Gilligan, and then it just all completely tits up. But that's how they ended up with Peston as well, because they were like, you know, bring in a newspaper guy who's got connections and he can break some stories for us. Right. Which obviously right. went pretty badly. But, um, yeah, that's yeah, so they did it, like, but they literally will have about three people, and it will be like, usually they're calling the something editor, and they're given the authority to break stories and then everybody else in the BBC is expected to follow their story that they've broken which it turns out I mean my god like talking about like <laughs> relationship journalists and politics I mean Robert Peston the way that he's been exposed in the last couple of years is somebody who just simply relays stuff that's said to him and just takes to Twitter and asks like questions about things he thinks are curious <laughs> I just feel I feel quite bad for him a lot of the time and I feel like embarrassed myself that there was a time like in around 
the 2008 financial crisis where I thought, well, I'll read Robert Peston's book. He knows what's going on in the financial markets. Because yeah. he had all of these contacts, you know, in the banks and stuff. And they were motivated so, to tell him stuff for, for various reasons. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he seemed like quite a serious journalist at the time. But then, um, I don't know, we shouldn't be bad-mouthing people on the show, really. But if you, go and, if you don't believe me, just go and go to Robert Peston's book to feed and just scroll through it and judge for yourself. You don't need to take my word for it. Um, no, it's, it's all there. It's a matter of public records. It is. I don't think we're we're not really revealing any great secrets. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah. Robert Peston doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. Another yeah. media democracy exclusive. <laughs> yeah, no, we're not gonna we're not gonna scoop anyone with with that. Um, but yeah, they uh, that there are very is very rare moments when uh, the BBC seems to actually. Um, change the the weather as opposed to reacting to work that's being done elsewhere in the media the media political directorate um good well we've covered a lot of ground i think we've said our piece um our handful of devoted fans will no doubt be pleased that we've popped up um out of the woodwork um it only remains from for us to wish everyone a very or better 2020 and Merry Christmas everyone and thanks for joining us Merry Christmas guys